And now from Deuteronomy <clears throat> 9 and 10. Listen, Israel, today you're about to cross the Jordan to enter and drive out nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities fortified to the heavens. The people are strong and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, you know about them, and you have heard it said about them, who can stand up to the sons of Anak? But understand that today the Lord your God will cross over ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will devastate and subdue, subdue them before you. You will drive them out and destroy them swiftly, as the Lord has told you. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out the, these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of the land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. In order to fulfill the promise he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God in the wilderness. You have been rebelling against the Lord from the day you left the land of Egypt until you reached this place. You provoked the Lord at Horeb. He was angry enough with you to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant the Lord made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I did not eat food or drink water. On the day of the assembly, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets inscribed by God's finger. The exact words were on them, which the Lord spoke to you from the fire on the mountain. The Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant, at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to me, get up and go down immediately from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way that I commanded them they have made a cast image for themselves. The Lord also said to me, I have seen this people and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Leave me alone and I will destroy them and blot out their name under heaven. Then I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I went back down the mountain while it was blazing with fire and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. I saw how you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made a calf image for yourselves. You had quickly turned from the way the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands, shattering them before your eyes. I fell down like the first time in the presence of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I did not eat food or drink water because of all the sin you committed doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and angering him. I was afraid of the fierce anger the Lord had directed against you because he was about to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me on that occasion. And now chapter 10. 
And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him, and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today for your own good. The heavens indeed, the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord has his heart set on your ancestors and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the people as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be a stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You are to fear the Lord your God and worship him Remain faithful to him and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God who has done for you these great and awe-inspiring works in your eyes that you have seen. Your ancestors went down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and now the Lord your God has made you numerous like the stars of the sky. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, again, we, uh, we come before you with gratitude, uh, knowing that you see us clearly. You see all of our limitations. You see our weakness. You see our wandering thoughts. And none of this is new to you. And um, we bring all of this before you, asking uh, for your spirits to help us, because um, Whatever you have for us this morning, we want to be able to receive. Um, so we pray um, that you would give us hearts and minds that are able to hear, that you would help me to speak in a way that is faithful to your word and honoring to you, that together we might be made more and more this new person you have made us in Christ Jesus to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there is um, a motto of a Christian publishing house that has kind of stuck with me ever since I saw it, and that it's just very simple, and it just says, another life is possible. Another life is possible. I think it stuck with me because it feels so counter to actually the way things feel. It doesn't feel like we have any other life available to us except the one that we're experiencing right now. And if we're honest, we realize things are not going well, at least collectively. We, we, see the, we see the injustice. We see the confusion in the world around us. We see and maybe even experience the, the loneliness, the, the hyper-busyness. It, 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 it doesn't feel like life should be except at the same time, it just also feels inevitable. How could it be any other way? Work is going to be work. Busyness is going to be busyness. The, the culture and the influences are just so strong. The political stuff just seems so unchangeable. It all seems so inevitable. 
And yet, Scripture tells us when Jesus comes and he proclaims the gospel and he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying another life is possible. And and I bring this up because this is not the first time this comes out in Scripture. In Deuteronomy, that is in very many ways what, what we are being given. A central theme of Deuteronomy is this idea that another life is possible. If you think about the story that Deuteronomy kind of is connected to, you have a group of people who for generations have been slaves. That is all they have known for all of their lives, nothing but backbreaking labor. And then God comes and brings them out and says, I have a different life for you. And, and here in Deuteronomy, we see Moses, on behalf of God, speaking to his people and saying, there is this life before you, a beautiful life that God wants for you, a life of abundance where when you enter this land, you will not want anything. A life of of harmony and connectedness where you will be able to dwell peacefully with your neighbors in, in, in a life of justice and righteousness and harmony And it'll be a life of joy and love because you will know God and be able to worship Him. Another life is possible and it is before you. So we have here, um, there's kind of two sections from this longer passage of chapters nine and 10, all kind of one unit, but too long for us to read. And at the very end, that final section beginning at verse 12 of chapter 10, um, you see Moses trying to kind of, to give this vision. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? They know what Pharaoh asked of them. Pharaoh wanted them to be working nonstop, to give every ounce of their energy to make bricks. And even at times he asked for their infants to be killed. They probably know what other pagan gods of the ancient Near East ask of their people. Again, backbreaking labor and at times child sacrifices. We know what is asked of us by our work. Oftentimes it feels like they want everything. But what, what Moses says, does God ask of you? What he asks of you is to remain in his love and to experience his grace. Uh, what it says specifically, what does God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God because we know the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He asks of you to love God and worship him because that is what you are made for and where your joy is found. He asks of you to walk in all his ways and to keep his statutes and commandments. Why? Notice what it says in verse 13, for your own good. God is God is asking you to walk in the way into the life that he wants for you. It is is a gift. We see it again at the other end of this same kind of culmination, verse 20. You are to fear the Lord your God and worship him. Remain faithful to him and take oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and awe-inspiring works your eyes have seen. On one hand, you might say, yes, this is a demand. But really, what we see is gift. God is saying, here is what I want. I want you to experience life the way that it was designed. Here, I have given you instructions, ways to walk in. I have let you know myself that you might be satisfied. Take hold of these gifts and experience this life that I have 
for you. That, that is what is being held out here in these verses. It's grace. In Deuteronomy, that is one of the central themes, but another central theme is, and that we have come up against again and again, is that there is just one obstacle. As, as Moses is saying, another life is possible, there is one thing that stands in the way. And the thing that stands in the way isn't really the fact that there are these mighty nations that are in the land that God wants to give his people. No, it's, it's something more subtle. God has the ability to wipe them out. That's not a problem. The, the problem, the obstacle that stands in the way of, of Israel being able to experience this other life lies within themselves. And so in this final section, in between those two parts that I pointed out in verses 12 and 20 where Moses is kind of holding out this idea, in the very middle of it, there is this somewhat odd verse that I think is central to understanding our entire passage, and that is verse 16, where it says, Therefore, circumcise your hearts, and don't be stiff-necked any longer. Now, there are a couple different strange ideas, and we're going to look at both of them, but to start out with, I just want to think about this idea of, of circumcising your hearts. Um, hundreds of years earlier, when God first initiates a relationship with Abraham, he, he, he speaks of how as this relationship is being established, he is giving them a sign, a sign of this covenant, a sign of this relationship. And he tells that for Abraham and all of his descendants, they will be circumcised as a sign that they are his special people. Without getting too much into the details, there is, if you will, a bloody, painful putting off that is part of what it calls to be God's people. A putting off, you might say, of a former identity, a, a death of a former self that is being symbolized here, as now they are to take on this new identity of God's holy people. But here we see now, centuries later, Moses is saying that that sign of relationship was never meant only to be an external thing. Circumcise your hearts. That is, there is a person that you used to be, a person that you now are, that needs to be done. There is an identity that you have, a way of being that needs to be put to death. You need, if even though it might be bloody and painful, you need to put off a former way and take on this new identity that God desires to give you. In other words, if you want to experience this beautiful life that God desires to give you, you're going to have to change at a very deep level. And change is difficult. Um, Jennifer can tell you that I even get thrown off when our living room furniture is moved around. And it, this is not just that, right? This isn't just a change in situation. This isn't even just a change in habits. This is a change in self. And anyone who's ever experienced addictions or walked with someone who's experienced addictions can tell you that that level of change is very, very hard. For that kind of change to happen, for a shift in the direction of someone's life, there needs to be something where it's absolutely clear that there is no other possibility, that it is absolutely necessary for this change to happen. And that is really what 
the rest of the passage leading up to this is all about Moses is seeking to help Israel to realize just how urgent, just how necessary this change is. And if we listen to what God says to us through it, we will realize he is speaking to us these very same things. So now let's back up to the very beginning of chapter nine where where Moses is in some ways preparing God's people for what is about to happen. He he is saying, you are about to now go into a land and and if you notice, it's not the most encouraging pep talk with which he begins, right? He says, now listen Israel, today you are about to cross the Jordan to enter and drive out nations greater, stronger, with large cities fortified to the heavens, they're strong and tall. To you they will be navy seals. They will have tanks and you will have BB guns. This is an impossible thing it seems like that you are about to experience. And yet, he says in verse three, you will be successful. Understand that today the Lord your God will cross ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will devastate and subdue them before you. You will drive them out and destroy them swiftly. You are going to have victory after victory after victory that will seem impossible and yet will happen again and again. And Moses brings this up for what he says next. He basically says, now don't let this go to your head. Which we can understand why. I mean, if, if, just imagine if you are doing something like this that seems impossible and yet you are winning again and again, how powerful you would feel in that moment, how amazing it would be. And Moses says, don't let that happen to you. Specifically, he says, when the Lord your God, verse four, drives them out before you, don't say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Which might seem to be a strange conclusion to draw when you're fighting and winning victories. You go, man, I'm a person of integrity. But I, I know of a pastor who spoke of, a pastor whose life essentially imploded, moral failure, and he said, looking back on it, that what happened was, even when his internal life was falling apart, he still had gifts and he still had God working through him. And so he drew the conclusion that because God was working through him, therefore everything must be okay inside of him when it wasn't true. And Moses says, don't let that happen to you. Don't let it happen that because God chooses to work through you, yet you decide that you are a people of integrity, of deep spiritual maturity. That that is not actually the conclusion you should draw. No, the reason that this is happening, he says, verse five, is this. He says, you are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive these nations out because of their wickedness in order to fill the the promise he swore to your fathers. In other words, the reason that you're going to win is because God is judging them for their idolatry. And the other reason you're going to win is because God is gracious and he has promised your fathers out of love that he is going to give this to you. That's the reason not because of you. In fact, verse six, understand that the Lord is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Here we come to the, the second time that we see that strange language we noticed before when it says circumcise your hearts because you are stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked, the commentators suggest that this is probably um, an agrarian metaphor, especially specifically to donkeys. A friend of mine, um, when he was a kid, was in a rural uh, place where he had this opportunity to to ride a donkey. You know, he got on the donkey, he has the bridle, he's holding it tight. There's only two problems. One is that this is 
an intact male donkey, and the second is as he is going in the direction he's trying to go, that intact male donkey happens to pass by a number of female donkeys. And so he finds himself, as he's trying to pull and he's trying to pull this donkey, no matter how much he tries to pull the head in the right direction, it just keeps on looking that way. And eventually, he, he loses control and the donkey just kind of moves to those female donkeys that he's way more interested in. He has a stiff neck, that donkey. It, no matter how much it tries to be moved in the right direction, that neck will keep on moving in the way that it wants to go. And Moses says, that, Israel, is you. God is saying, here is the way. This is the good way, the way of righteousness. Walk in this way, and again and again, as God seeks to lead you, you keep on turning your head, turning your head in a different direction. You don't ever seem to go the way that you're supposed to go. And then Moses says, and I have the receipts to prove it. So verse seven, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God in the wilderness. You have been rebelling, or literally that could be translated, you have been obstinate against the Lord from the day you left the land of Egypt until you reached this place. Your story in the wilderness has been non-stop obstinacy. And specifically, Moses zeroes in on, on the one moment that he sees as the most revealing moment in the history of Israel when they come to Mount Sinai. He, he speaks kind of from a first-person perspective. He, he remembers this time where he was on the top of Mount Sinai, he says, for 40 days and 40 nights meeting with God. And man, do I wish he gave more detail, but I suspect he doesn't give more detail because he wouldn't even be able to describe what it was like for him meeting with God for 40 days as God is teaching him what this covenant is supposed to mean, how it is supposed to look. And he says, at the very end of this time, with God's own finger, he inscribed these two tablets, the Ten Commandments, to show this covenant is real. If you will, it is a little bit like in that moment in the wedding where where the, the husband takes the ring and puts it on the wife's finger to show that there is a relationship and a binding. That is what is happening. God is saying, I bind myself to you by writing these words. There is this relationship, and as Moses receives these with joy, sensing the reality of the significance of this relationship, God suddenly seems to almost like change direction and says, Moses, you need to go down now. And, and so he says in verse 12, the Lord said to me, get up and go down immediately from here. For your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way that I commanded them. They have made a cast image for themselves. And, and God doesn't just speak of a specific action. Notice he, he draws a conclusion. Verse 13, the Lord also said to me, I have seen this people, and indeed, they are a stiff-necked people. You know, sometimes when we do something, we'll say, that just wasn't me. Like, you know, maybe if we haven't eaten, I'm sorry, that, I was just hangry or we're exhausted or whatever. That's not what's going on here. God is saying this isn't just some sort of happening. This is not just some accidental thing that's not really deep. This is who they are. What you see here as in the very moment I have brought them to me, the very moment I've made the covenant, they immediately turn aside to do what they are doing. It shows something that is fundamental to who they are. They are a stiff-necked people. 
And Moses, in, a, in the part of the passage that we didn't have a chance to read, will, will give further evidence of this. He will say, and, and, and remember, every time things went bad, what did you do? You complained against God, and you said, man, I wish we went back to Egypt. You were a donkey turning your head again. When we finally came to the promised land and God said, take it, you were obstinate, refusing to go in the direction that God told you. Don't you see? Again and again, you see. You are a stiff-necked people. That is who you are. It goes deep. Now, before we just think about, oh, that's interesting about them, we should recognize something strange about this, this interaction. The people that Moses is speaking to, none of them were actually there at Mount Sinai. This is the next generation. None of them were actually there where people refused to enter the promised land. Again, this is the next generation, but yet somehow Moses says, you too, this is a problem for you. In other words, it's not just a problem of a specific group of people, an old generation that now has been fixed. Moses says there is something deeper that is going on here. And as scripture reveals to us over time, what we realize is what we're talking about here is not just, not just a generational problem, not just an Israelite problem, we're talking about a human problem. It is the condition of human sinfulness to be stiff-necked. It is the condition of human sinfulness to be repeatedly, consistently resistant to God as God invites us to the way that we want to actually go. And if you take a moment to reflect, you will, I think you'll see that there's truth to this. We know that wisdom is found in fearing God and in recognizing our creaturely smallness. And yet, how often do we revert to the idea that we're the ones in control? We know that there is nothing better or more satisfying or more life-giving than to give of ourselves to God and to give of ourselves to others, yet how often do we try to protect ourselves and to hold on to ourselves? We know that rest and joy is found in prayerfulness and gratitude to God. And yet, how often do we find ourselves reverting back to self-reliance? Do, do you see what, what we see in this? That there is something, something deeply irrational, something deep to our core that resists whenever God is saying, look, this is the good way. This is the way of my love. And we go this. And, and the problem is we keep wanting to walk right into a ditch. And that's the thing. Moses doesn't just say, look, there's this truth about you. What's even more disconcerting is he says, this truth is really, really significant. So right after God draws this conclusion, I have seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people, what does he say after? Leave me alone and I will destroy them and blot out their name under heaven. Moses, in that moment, does. He, he goes, he, he runs down the hill, and you can almost imagine the next scene where he is carrying these two stone tablets that God has bound himself to his people with, and he comes and he sees thousands upon thousands of people just gathered, and he probably can't even see why they're gathered. 
There's just this huge singing and bowing and dancing all around something, and as they walk through, people start noticing Moses is back, Moses is back, and there's kind of this mumbling and things kind of quiet down, and he finally gets to the very middle and he sees the, stone ca- the golden calf, and with tears in his eyes, he looks at this people, and there's only some, one thing he can do. He can take these two, two stone tablets and he just throws them down and he breaks them because he knows it's over. It, it would be, I suppose, akin to someone taking their wedding ring off and just throwing it into the lake, saying, this, this is done. This relationship has been fundamentally ruined by what you have just done because you are so stiff-necked. I have, uh, I, I know of a couple where it was really sad. Early on in their marriage, uh, this man's wife just repeatedly would be cheating on him uh, and with different people. And each time she was repentant, each time she would saying that I love you, I don't mean to, and, but at a certain point it became clear there is no way a marriage is possible like this because trust was impossible and so a divorce was necessary. Now what do you do when you have a people with a God who again and again and again will betray him and will never be led by him? What other solution is there but to end it? And whereas the former analogy ending is just an end of a marriage here, the ending of a relationship with God, who is the source of life, would mean death. So Moses says, look, you need to understand this is serious. This is terminal. If, if you don't change, if you don't circumcise your hearts, if you don't put off that, that old self that keeps turning away from God, the only direction it will take you is death. And that is, of course, the implication for us as well. What this passage is helping us to see is that we, we cannot just go in the way that we naturally go, that unless there is a change at the very core of our being, we are in a very bad situation. But the problem is, if we keep reading Deuteronomy and beyond, what becomes clear is even, even though that's what they need to do, even though it's obvious that's what they should do, it is what they will never do. God's people do not change. Again and again, they show that. So what does that mean? Does that mean actually another life is not possible? Well, there's one more part of this passage that we also need to see to understand truly what is going on, and it is initially pretty confusing. So we see after um, Moses has, has seen what has taken place, he, he hurries back up the mountain. He is horrified, he is terrified. It, it says in verse 19 that I was afraid of the fierce anger the Lord had directed against you because he was about to destroy you. I know that's what you deserved. It says he appeals to God in prayer, and it says, again, the Lord heard me. The Lord listens to me on that occasion. Now, how are we supposed to make sense of this? Are we, it it can seem on first reading like you have a, a God who is so angry, he's kind of flying off the handle, and Moses just needs to kind of soothe him and talk him down. But, but that isn't what's going on. 
God is completely in control of this whole situation. He is the one, to be clear, who ordained Moses to do this very kind of thing. Moses is doing, in this moment, what God has wanted him to do. And what's more, when Moses prays, we will, the prayer that is in between the two passages that we read, it's a prayer where Moses is not doing anything but just saying, God, this is who you are. You have chosen us. You have rescued us. You have set your love upon us. You have made your promises to our fathers. Save us. He is only appealing to truths about who God actually is. This is not a situation where two different forces are contesting against each other. There would be no chance if that were the case. Instead, this is a way that God is choosing to reveal something that is very difficult for us to put together. He is revealing two truths that we don't see how they can resolve. When he is showing his righteous anger, his fury, he is helping us to realize that this kind of faithlessness cannot be dealt with trivially. This kind of faithlessness is, is, is death-bringing. That is one truth we are seeing. And yet when Moses is praying according to God's will, when Moses is praying according to who God is, Moses is also expressing another truth about God. And that is a God, this is a God who is committed to his people, a God who is faithful and gracious. It's an anticipation, if you will, of something that happens many, many, many centuries later. I mean, do we not see these two things coming together on the cross? On the cross, as Jesus bears our sins, he experiences the anger of God, and we see just how awful sin is and how much it deserves death. And yet, what is Jesus' prayer? Forgive them, Father. But he's not just praying on his behalf, he is the son of God. He is praying God's own prayer to God, showing us that the very heart of God is also for forgiveness. And on the cross, we see the resolution. And here, in some ways, in a hint form, we see the resolution as well. In, in 10 verse 10, which is not in the passage that is in your bulletin, but just a couple verses before, Moses says, I stayed in the mountains 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. The Lord heard me on this occasion. He did not want to destroy you. That is the end of this. Yes, you were wrong. Yes, God had every right to destroy you. And yet God does not want to destroy you because he is a forgiving and merciful God. The, the, if we understand this passage rightly, if we understand the cross rightly, what we are being told is that as great as your sin is, God's grace is greater. As deep as your stubbornness goes, God's faithfulness and commitment goes deeper. And so what happens after Moses prays is, is God says, okay, get two more tablets, I'm gonna write new ones. God, in some ways, does this start again, does this do over, but it's not, it's not just kind of like a, a refresh, a reset, because, because something has been revealed about God's people. It has been made clear that this is who they are. They are constitutionally incapable of being faithful. God knows when he says, let us move forward together, that they will turn away from him again and again and again, and yet he says, I will still see this through. And so if we continue on in Deuteronomy, if we were to 
and we will in a few weeks look at this, we will recognize that, that chapter 10's call to circumcise your hearts, a, a call that is ultimately not obeyed, is not the last time that we will see this language of circumcising your hearts. In, in chapter 30, Moses anticipates a time in the future where, where, Mo, where God's people will have wandered. They have gone way beyond wandering into a ditch. They will have almost fallen off a cliff. It looks like they will have died. And then it says, and God will bring you back, and now God will be the one who circumcises your hearts. In other words, there will come a time where what you cannot do on your own, God will do for you because he is that committed to rescuing you, no matter how deep your sin goes. And it is only, I think, once we get to the New Testament that we fully can understand what, what Moses, what God is anticipating there in Deuteronomy 30. You know, there's this really interesting passage in, in Colossians that actually brings up the language of circumcision again. And, and here's what it says. It says, whenever someone places their faith in Jesus, in that moment, you, your heart has been circumcised. That is, in that moment, your old self joins with Jesus on the cross and is put to death. The stubbornness, the unwilling to follow God, that identity that you formerly were dies with Jesus. And the new identity that you have in Jesus is now yours. Now, Scripture is also clear that we are in a time of transition where that definitive act is still making itself known. We are in what sometimes is described as the now and not yet. So both that old way of being and the new way of being are side by side. And what that means is two things, and with these two things I close. First, what that means is you and I should not be surprised when we do things that are horrifying. We just need to be honest and realistic about this. If, if what we have said is the case, if there is something about the, the, the sinful human condition that goes deep in each of us, we should not be surprised when certain moments happen where we say something that is just cruel or when we do something that is so clearly wrong and we go, who am I? We should not be surprised because that is part of what we were and we have not yet moved away from that. And we should not be afraid, even though it is right for us to grieve, because God knows that about you. He knew that long before you did and he has dealt with it and you are forgiven. But there is a second truth that is, even as we experience that, we do not need to despair because though sometimes we will do things that are like that, that is no longer you. You are no longer that person, that stiff-necked person. You now have a capacity, the ability to move in the direction God calls you to. The person you are that you will one day see clearly is one who is compassionate and is humble and is loving and is forgiving because who you are is the person you are in Jesus. And every day you have the opportunity now to move more into being human. Paul says, now that this has happened to you, every day put to death that thing that is no longer you, that person that you don't want to be, and take on this life of goodness and joy that is in Jesus. Because of what has happened to you, you are now able to walk and experience the reality that another life is possible. 